Welcome to The Things That Made Me Queer, the podcast that explores queer identities through the pop culture and real-life moments that shaped us. I am, of course, your host, Crystal. And how about it? Season three! We did it, Joe! (laughs) Okay, so firstly, I need to apologize. I know if you're a listener to this podcast, this season has taken a long time. It's been a long time since season two came out. You might call it a hefty hiatus, but we are back, and I'm so glad to be back in your ear holes. The delay was for multiple reasons. No one's fault. Just all of the powers that be and things that lie out of our control, but I have actually already recorded the bulk of the season over the last six months or so. So I've got a gorgeous lineup of really interesting, insightful, cool, crazy people coming down the pipe for the season, and uh, I think you're really going to like it. Hey, it'll be like a time capsule, because this is going to come out in the winter, and some of these episodes were recorded when London was having a heatwave, so, you know, that'll be nice for you. What do I want to say to you? Well, firstly, I want to ask you how I sound. How do I sound? The irony of all of it is that this podcast has finally driven me back into the closet, because I am now sitting in a closet, trying to record this intro. (laughs) I've been listening to some of the mixes for episodes that I've recorded over the last few months, and I've been living house to house while doing a big reno, and haven't had a permanent home to record from until very recently. So the audio quality of these episodes is a little bit all over the place, I'm not going to lie, but it's inspired me to maybe try and finally get my, my audio sounding good, and I think this is what the podcast pros do. So here I am, sat on the floor in my closet, which thankfully is very spacious, Hopefully I sound delicious and delightful and rich and warm. Uh, Let me know. Right, I'm going to get into uh, this episode real soon. Let me just tell you what's going on in my life beforehand. What should I tell you? Well, this week uh, it is DragCon UK, and hopefully this episode's coming out shortly thereafter. So if you are hearing this and you've just been to DragCon in London, hopefully we got to meet and if we didn't well that was incredibly rude of you and you should be absolutely ashamed of yourself depending on when you are listening to this episode it's just been dragcon uk i'm sat here dragcon's gonna happen this weekend so this episode should be out next week which means it's just happened and yeah hopefully if you were there we got a chance to meet if you were there and you did not come to meet me then uh, is incredibly rude. You should be very ashamed of yourself. And if you didn't come at all, well, that's okay too, because all you really missed was a bunch of overtired, hungover drag queens. Um, so maybe you're better off just sticking with the podcast. So my guest on this premiere episode is none other than Natalie Wynn, who you might know from YouTube uh, as ContraPoints. And we have a really amazing, amazing conversation. She's got such a unique and hilarious perspective on the world and a real dry sense of humor, uh, which hopefully you're really going to enjoy. We talk about villainy, about self-actualization, 
about showgirls because I always talk about showgirls. We talk about being cringe but being free. Uh, it's a great episode. I, I would want to warn you though that there is um, some conversations about substance abuse so if that's a sensitive topic for you then maybe just be warned going into this episode and yes I will get into it in just a second but before I do I just would like to take this opportunity to remind you to please subscribe to the podcast to tell your friends to have a listen to tweet about it to comment on my posts on Instagram to do anything you can to help support the podcast it is tough work Uh, promoting a podcast and your support is greatly greatly appreciated so thank you and right i think we should get into it so without further ado here is the things that made me queer with natalie win okay so my guest today is internet force of nature natalie win i'm going to just read from her website because it's always the best way. She is a social commentator, an entertainer, and video essayist with over 1.5 million subscribers to her channel, ContraPoints. She's been described as the Oscar Wilde of YouTube by The Verge and won the 2020 Streamies Award for Best Commentary Channel. Her videos on internet culture and online hate movements have become an online cultural phenomenon, gaining over 88 million views and earning her position as one of the most influential figures in online progressive activism. I am a huge fan and so excited to be talking to her today. Please welcome to the podcast, Natalie Wynn. Hello. Thank you so much. I am so happy to be here. I'm glad you're here. Uh, Where in the world do we find you? I am in Baltimore, Maryland. Gorgeous. It's been the last seven years. Lovely. Oh, before we get into it, could you please let me know how you identify and what your pronouns are? Yes, I am a transgender woman. My pronouns are she, her. Lovely. I'm a gay man and I'm he, him. I'll keep that in mind. And sometimes I'm sometimes I'm she, her, but today I'm not feeling that nasty. How is your life? What are you up to these days? My life is good. (laughs) It's been bad for a long time. It's good. It's good at the moment. I am a full-time YouTuber. I make videos in my house. So I, you know, just have this isolated existence where just, <laughs> I mean, I don't know. It, it kind of works for me. Like you can, you can take things too far. You can take solitude too far. I think most of us did for the last two or three uh-huh. years. Um, uh-huh. I mean, I definitely did. I was not doing well, but just, just being able to get out once a week for me makes a big difference. I'm dating someone for the first time in a long time. It's good. Lovely. When you said you take solitude too far, what does too far look like for you? Uh, too far means like, you you know, you're spending so much time alone with your own thoughts that your mind begins to devour itself. And <laughs> you, uh, I mean, it, I, I, I feel like we all kind of learned whatever our demons were in the mm. last, in the, during the, the pandemic. I guess t- to me, it was, it was addiction because I got real deep into that tendency but i'm i'm happy to say that it's it's been it's been much better for the last last year or so i'm happy to hear that i actually wanted to ask you a bit about that mm. if you're comfortable to talk about it oh, yeah. because i've I watched mean, your last video my last video is about it so yeah yes. it's, it's fair game yeah <laughs> yeah talk to me a bit about that like it's obviously we've left it in a on a to be continued it was i didn't see it coming basically i saw the you know the first half is of a, of your video is a totally different story and it's um kind of 
what I what I've come to expect from you, and then it it really really takes a turn. Uh, what what was going on? What's it all about? Well, I think I felt having. I mean, so so basically, I went through a lot of bad things in tw- at the end of 2019 or beginning of 2020. I had kind of. Uh, f- this is this is really a very elaborate queer heartbreak story, um, but, but I had kind of, you know, when I when I transitioned. I kind of felt that I needed to be a straight woman. I, I I didn't think that. Like I wouldn't have said that I believe that, but some beliefs you kind of feel them instead of saying them. Mm-hmm. And I kind of felt that if I was gonna be if I was gonna transition properly, if I was serious about being a woman, then I probably should have only romantic feelings for men. And so when I fell in love with my best friend, who was a woman, uh my life got really bad. And I, I so I was, I, I went through that. I kind of like m- made some bad decisions on Twitter in 2019, which led to, led to me kind of being isolated from a lot of people. And then I, I sort of, you know, my, my fr- friendship slash best friend I was in love with, like we kind of parted ways because, uh, you know, it was, the situation was too bad to get out of. And then COVID happens. So like right when like I feel like I could have had a chance to like maybe I don't know go out meet some new people tr- you know try life again with a with a more honest view of my sexuality instead I just got like, locked inside with myself I live alone and so I start I, I was just extremely extremely depressed which led me to starting to abuse painkillers and that escalated in the way that it, it, it usually does to where I was kind of, I don't know, for, when I think back on the 2020 and 2021, a lot of those years, like my life kind of revolved around, around Oxycontin and like whatever or whatever else that, that, that I could get. And uh, yeah, it was a bad time. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. I mean, so yeah, sorry to be a downer. No, but... it's, I, thank you for being honest and vulnerable. It's, yeah. I, I appreciate it. I I I feel um very lucky because I, I live with my husband so I had mm. someone to constantly like express my frustrations to. I think I would have I could have easily gone down a similar route probably not with drugs but maybe with booze if I hadn't been careful and had some support. It's it was such an isolating time and you know more and more stories are coming out of people who found that side of themselves during the pandemic. Yeah, it makes me think of. I think there's like a scientific study with rats that if rats have like a, a, a sort of like social group of rats to to be around, they won't kill themselves with 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 drugs. But an isolated rat will like will itself administer morphine or cocaine in, until it's dead. I, I feel like I, I became the, the the lonely rat <laughs> during the pandemic. It's 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 really true that like he, people need connection and if you don't have it you kind of replace those social feelings of love with the feelings that you can get from mm. from alcohol from opiates how are you managing loneliness now then how do you how do you deal with that well i uh, met a wonderful woman who i started dating so that's helped um helped a lot i've you know been able to tra- a lot of my friends are live in different cities so being able to travel again has been a huge deal for me um, like I said, I'm a pretty introverted person, so I, I don't need, I'm not someone who constantly needs to be like out going to bars and clubs. That's not really my personality, but 
I need to like regularly go be be around people I like. That sort of keeps me from spiraling in on myself. Mm-hmm. I feel that really hard. I'm I'm also naturally an introvert, and I can very happily spend the whole day by myself and not even notice that I haven't spoken to anyone. Yeah, in moderation, it's so good. Yeah, and then you know you, you do that a couple of days, and you're like, oh wait, what's going on? And it's, I think, you're at more danger of it if you're an introvert because. It's good in moderation, as you say. Right. You like, because extroverts, they never are suffering from the delusion that being a hermit is a good idea, right? They, 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 (laughs) they know, they know it's a bad idea. But to us, there is a kind of temptation. I definitely feel that. Like, especially if I spend too much time around other people, I start, I start craving solitude. And so I'm like, you know what? This is going to be a day I spent like reading and watching movies by myself. And I love those days. Like, I, I, I love them. I love being by myself. But yeah, exactly like you said, on day three or so, it starts, it's this this uh, kind of darkness starts creeping in. Uh-huh. And uh, yeah, you, you got to do something about that before it's like, no too bad. No one's forcing me to have a shower. Right. What? Yeah. <laughs> have you ever had an experience where you like, you, I don't know, if you, if you stay home like two or three days without, without leaving, you kind of like get into some kind of really negative like, like thought spiral. And then you suddenly, if you walk outside, it's instantly better. You're just like, oh, right. Trees, sunshine, mm-hmm. people is normal. Whatever I was like, thinking about actually doesn't matter at all. Well, that's interesting you say that because the way I discovered you was during the pandemic and it was watching your videos while going for a walk. <laughs> and oh, like, that's fun. <laughs> yeah. And it was just a way of like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to go for a walk for the length of this video, which is, you know, they're nice and long. It's a good walk. And like, I would always come back feeling like, oh, I've got new ideas in my brain and a fresh perspective. And I've had some exercise, which has released some nice endorphins in my body. So um, I'm sorry that you were experiencing a really bad time because you really, <laughs> you were really helping me out. So Well, that, thank- that, no, that's, I'm, that's very flattering. I'm, I'm very happy to be someone's walk videos. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love listening. I love listening to like audiobooks or whatever when I go for a walk. So um yeah, well, I think I don't know. COVID it was certainly good for digital content creation. Like, I think that everyone suddenly uh, I noticed YouTube videos seemed to get longer during the pandemic. As there's the, suddenly this big audience for two hour videos, you know, people, you, you know, it, it can help with loneliness too. I think putting on YouTube videos, like I, I liked if I'm if I'm spending a lot of time alone, especially when I was you know I was single for two years and by myself, like most of the time just putting on a youtube video or and having there's that parasocial thing where it's like you feel like mm. you're like you have a friend in the room talking to you it really helps from like you know the horrifying silence of the night <laughs> <laughs> which is uh, something that i can't stand yeah yeah i've i use podcasts in that way and it's a little bit weird how much you can start to think that these people are your your friends or yeah it's like you're it's like you're all hanging out yeah you're just the quiet one yeah exactly and actually i'm often the quiet one in friend groups so it's mm. it just it suits me just fine i've got i mean i'm also now at a point where lots of my friends have podcasts so that's even more bizarre where you're like you do feel like you're part of the conversation because you know them intimately anyway we're all we're all just content creators at this point yeah Oh, that's totally a weird thing that I have with my friends who are, are YouTubers. Like, I sort of have a, a a friend relationship with them, and then I have the like parasocial, like pseudo friend relationship with their content. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, it's, it's it's like a weird way of knowing someone in two different ways. Mm-hmm. Especially if like you don't like the on online version of them. <laughs> if you don't like their content, yeah, you're uh-huh. a great pre- you're a great person. It's too it's too bad about your tweet. Yeah. <laughs> 
Okay, don't at me. <laughs> totally. Well, let's, without further ado, let's get into your list. Um, Natalie, every week, my guest brings a person, a place, a film or TV series, an album or song, and a wild card that helped them understand their queer identity. And you have sent me your list, which I love. I think we should dive right in. So up first is your person. And you have given me Wendy Carlos. Tell the children about Wendy Carlos. Yes, I chose Wendy Carlos in part because I feel like a lot of people, especially younger queer people, probably don't know who she is, but she is a trans woman who in the late 60s and early 1970s like really pioneered electronic music. So she did some soundtracks to uh, Stanley Kubrick movies, A Clockwork Orange and The Shining, um, which have like a lot of times classical music, but played on a synthesizer, um, mm-hmm. which was a super like novel concept at the time. You know, there even in, in the sixties, even in pop music, a synthesizer was rare. Like you rarely heard electronic sounds. Um, but she released, I think it was in sixty eight, sixty nine, this album called Switched on Bach, which is like all all music by Bach, the composer, but played on synthesizers. I was a music nerd in high school. I was in the orchestra, I played the piano, and so this was interesting to me. Um, and then I learned that she's a trans woman. And, you know, Wendy Carlos is not a is, is not a person who likes a lot of public attention. She's never really made a big deal of it and sort of has, has been private. But just knowing that there's a person who's a trans woman who's doing things in the world and, like, I don't know, is, is accomplished and is achieving something cool, I feel that kind of planted a seed that made me think that this, you know, you could be a trans woman and be more than like what trans women are usually. I think, I think usually, you know, I, I'm, I'm 33, I was born in 1988. So I kind of, I grew up in the 90s, early 2000s. Media about trans people back then was real bad. Yeah, you could be a prostitute. Yeah, usually a dead one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or you could be a, a, a monster. That was kind of the other option. It's either that you're like tricking men who like throw up when they discover that, that that you're trans, or it's that you have like you're like you're like murdering women in your basement as like Buffalo Bill or um, mm. I mean Rocky Horror is kind of that that's kind of a mixed bag because I do feel that a lot of queer people, a lot of trans people did love and still do love Rocky Horror, but it is like a little bit of a I don't know. It is is definitely like the kind of monster presentation of queerness. Which yeah. can be important to people, but I think it's also, it's sometimes can be hard to think of that being your life. Like, oh, I want to choose this life. I want to live in a Transylvanian castle. I mean, now I would choose that, but but when you're a teenager, you know, you're scared and you don't you don't know where you're gonna fit in. Mm-hmm. I was just talking to John Cameron Mitchell, who was on an episode, and it's a similar sort of thing with Hedvig, yeah, where you're like, yeah, yeah, this person is exciting, and I want to be them, but also I wouldn't, you know, their life is not something that I can aspire to as a queer person. It's not. It's, it's tragic not, and difficult, and yeah, exactly, yeah. and unattainable in a bajillion ways. But it's a, it's an exciting thing to look at, but it's not necessarily grounded in any actual realism. And so that's what Wendy was for you. Yeah, it was the like grounding. Yeah, I th- I think because I think there's kind of two dimensions to like r- realizing you're queer, especially when it comes to like art and media. And one is the imagination 
kind of side of it where I don't know things that things that sort of spark your imagination that make you imagine possibilities that uh, you know sort of engage with fantasy about who you could become the more theatrical side maybe I think that's important but there's this other side which is that you still have to like live a, a human life <laughs> in the world <laughs> and and that's kind of two, it's kind of two different ways of coming to identify like one is like your fantasy identity which okay identify with, with whatever you want vampires uh Transylvanian uh, Trans- yeah right Trans- murders whatever but you also you're like am i going to have a job at some point and <laughs> you know that i think uh, it's 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 cool to know. Oh, this person was making a living as a musician. She's respected for the work that she did. It, it's help. It's kind of helpful to envision a realistic future for yourself. Mm-hmm. Something that also coincides with your interests. Yeah, totally. And also seems like maybe it's not that big a deal. Their identity. Yeah, ex- yeah. Maybe it's not that big a deal. Yeah. I was watching some clips of her, and I believe she, you know, spent a lot of her early media appearances in the closet about her transness and it's it's truly amazing to watch these videos because it's she's so clearly a woman in male drag doing these interviews um trying to hide it's like a there was a stage when she was like gluing on sideburns uh-huh that's to, the video i yeah, saw yeah yeah to like tr- to, to do like yeah literally literal male drag to, to kind of try to cover up the fact that she was transitioning which is and that's not how I did it. I um, I basically went like the second I went, it was like I'm definitely gonna medically transition. I basically went f- full time, almost almost overnight, which was difficult in its own way. But um, yeah, that that's that's there's different ways of being in the closet, and and that's the sort of it's it's actually pretty common, I think, for for trans people who are sort of. I want to say normal people, like who who sort of ha- who who sort of hold down, hold down like normal jobs or not performers, like like I am. Um, it's it's pretty common for trans people to kind of begin a bit covertly and to kind of maybe start hormones without before even coming out to anyone they know. I, I've I've known several people who who are like that. Yeah, I mean, I've heard that story as well, and yeah. you know, you hear about, and then finally the courage is welled up, and they tell their boss, and then they're gonna they're gonna go on a month holiday, and when they come back, it's gonna be a new person. Not a new person, but a new name. New name, new gender. Yeah. When you found out about Wendy, where were you? Where was your thinking in terms of your identity and your gender and your sexuality? You know, I think this was something that was interesting to me. I think that I probably had more sympathy for it than most people did. (laughs) I think that it was kind of fascinating to me, but. It, it would take a while before I was like, oh, this is something I want to do. Um, I don't know. To me, transitioning, it's a pretty drastic thing to do. Mm-hmm. And so things, for me anyway, some people, I don't know, some people know from like age five or whatever, they just know. I was not like that. I kind of had to feel it out a bit. And to me, transition actually is always, it, it always seems like a, kind of a scary thing to do. I think it took for me meeting other trans people this is another level of kind of a grounding experience um where where, you know you kind of meet people who are not it's nice to know that a celebrity is trans but there's another level of oh here's an actual trans person i'm talking to them face to face Mm -hmm. they are surviving in this world um that i think that really is really to me kind of what it took to to be like okay i'm gonna actually do this trans people they're just like us Exactly. They're just like <laughs> me because, oh. 
<laughs> they also get the best. Yeah, yeah. What did you know about yourself? Or what did you think you knew when you were in high school? That's a good question. I mean, I think that to me, so I, I, I now I identify as a tra- trans lesbian. So uh, I went through a stage of, like I said, or, you know, the, the first few years of my transition of thinking oh, I should date men or feeling oh, I should date men mm-hmm. and doing that. Uh, it didn't really work for me. But I would say that in a way, I mean, I knew that I was attracted to women when I was young. I think that tends that you you know pretty early on who you're attracted mm-hmm. to as a general rule. Uh, I guess not some people figure it out later, but I knew early on that I was attracted to women. And so I did, before I, tra- I transitioned, I did date women as a boy. And I think that over time, I sort of increasingly came to see that like this wasn't really going to work because I I was attracted to women, but like not in the right way. Mm-hmm. I mean, the right way, obviously. <laughs> like, like I, I, you know, I think that my way is, is is just fine now. But shortly before I did transition in my, in my 20s, I, I was for a very short period of time, I was dating a woman who I just kind of came to realize that things would never work out before, for us because she wanted me to be a man. And I didn't want to be that. I think part of it has to do with identification. Like, if you're a straight man, you're supposed to be attracted to women, but you're not supposed to identify with women. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you identify, you you sort of it's a, it's a difficult series of feelings to sort through. I think I think that a lot of cis lesbians sort of go through this in the opposite direction, where if you're assigned female at birth, you're raised as a, as a girl or a woman, like you're supposed to identify with women. Mm-hmm. That that's how you sort of become a, a woman is through identifying with you know your mother or identifying with uh, you know a, a other women that you know, and it's acceptable to kind of admire women or to envy women or you know uh, right if you're a girl it's, it's okay to think oh this this girl is so pretty like I feel envious, but I think for a lot of cis lesbians they reach a point where they kind of realize these feelings that I have about women are not just identification it's also attraction and i think that for me it was the opposite i realized these feelings that i have for women are not just attraction it's also identification Mm. like that there is like sometimes some mix of like envy in this like it's not just that it's not like it's not just i want you it's like i want to be like you Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. i mean i think that that is i think that 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 kind of dynamic is pretty normal um, with gay people in general, is that yes, you have to like <laughs> just relating so hard. <laughs> yeah, you do. I like, want to fuck you, or do I want to be you? Yeah, right. They're, they're, like there's this like attraction versus identify and identification thing that is like such a a thing for for all gay people. I think. Well, I think like I think some of the a lot of times gay people create like these sort of artificial dichotomies that sort of helps sort that out. Like top and bottom. I don't know, yeah. top bottom butch femme. It sort of helps like distinguish roles, and that way you sort of don't have this sense of like, I, I don't know, like merging with the person that you're attracted to. Um, although I don't know, I'm a, a femme woman and I'm also dating a femme woman. So I guess I've embraced the merging, but but it does present some some, some challenges, right? Like you're like, well, who does what? And, and it, it's, it, it's, I think that type of relationship 
really forces you to like challenge the a lot of like heterosexual assumptions about I don't know what dating is, what sex is, what romance is when you don't have those kind of rules scripted mm-hmm. out for you. Yeah, it is interesting that we as queer people said we can be do whatever we want. We're not straight and then and then we went and enforced our own binary roles. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know what? Let's just keep keep this because it's too scary otherwise. Yeah, I mean I think it's complicated like like uh, obviously like being a top or a bottom or being a butcher femme like that's not the same as like being the man or the woman right there's that thing that straight people ask of like oh, who's the man like well yes. if you're a lesbian it's like neither of us is the man like sweetie that's the point but <laughs> but, with, but what they're asking does have like some grain of of truth in it right they're they're, they're trying to conceptualize you as a romantic couple in the way that they understand that which means that there's there's these distinct rules yes and I've definitely had relationships where the roles were super distinct and I've had relationships where they've been less distinct. And it's definitely easier when they're distinct. It, you know, everyone knows where they stand. But um, yeah, I think that's true. It's like it's it's sort of you have to put less thought into it, I guess. It's you can kind of you kind of oh, we all know how to do this. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. Beautiful. Well, let's talk about your next item, then, which is your film or TV series. Iconic film, Black Swan. OK, so Black Swan, well, it's a 2010 movie uh, directed Darren Aronofsky, st- starring Natalie Portman as a ballerina who is struggling with anorexia, with obsession, with uh, conflict with her mother, and with lesbianism. Mm-hmm. So I, I think I've I've talked to a lot of queer people about this movie, and it's controversial. <laughs> I mean, what does good queer representation look like? I guess some people want to see a very idealized depiction. And I think that's, I I agree that that should exist. Like, I think queer people, we need cheesy rom-coms. Like, we, that should, we should, we deserve that. But Uh I I guess, I don't know, maybe this is a personality thing. I love, I love bad representation. And I feel that Black Swan is good because it's bad. Like, Uh because it engages with, like, horror and anxiety and... (laughs) And all, all these like sort of difficult feelings. I don't know. I guess I'm just a sicko, and I want to watch. <laughs> I, I want to watch sick shit. Like, <laughs> well, you are preaching to someone who, uh, if you know, my film in that slot would be Showgirls, which is essentially oh, that's the prologue of Black Swan. So you're you're, you're a real you're a real sicko. Yeah, that's <laughs> real sicko. <laughs> They're the same movie. It's just... yeah. That's that's true. There's a lot of commonality. <laughs> yeah, I think representation doesn't need to be perfect. And is wait, is Darren Aronofsky straight? I think so, yes. I think so too. And like, yeah. I, it it feels like a movie a straight man would make about it does. all of those issues. It does. But that's to me, that's also like part of the appeal is that like, I'm not, I'm not, I'm actually not sure that Jer- Darren Aronofsky understands that he has made a camp movie. Um, <laughs> and that's the best kind of camp movie. It's one that's not, doesn't quite know what it is. I mean, that's yeah. like but Mommy, Mommy Dearest is like that, yeah. right? Like Mommy Dearest was not trying to be a camp classic. Um, but that's why that's what the, where the magic is. And Showgirls as well. Like yeah, Showgirls, just, right? I've actually have you ever seen the mashup of Showgirls clips with the trailer audio of Black Swan? No, I haven't. Uh, well, <laughs> oh, then I, that's a treat for you later. It is, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's not knowing. Yeah, I mean, I forgot actually how camp Black Swan was, and it's so cheesy in so many ways. Like the all of the drug stuff is really 
of a time. Like, the drug Whoa. stuff is yeah. The, the doing Molly is very funny. Uh-huh. The um the fact that she's like she she starts to identify as the Swan Queen and grow feathers. Very funny. Um, I mean, it, <laughs> she 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 has this paranoid fantasy that her Mila Kunis, her like rival slash love interest, is. Is having sex with the, the what's his name the villain of Swan Lake the Wrath yeah Wrathbone or Wrathbone Wrath, or... Wrath yeah I forget what his name is but he's like the evil a big evil bird man it's very uh-huh. fun. it's extremely funny um, I, I don't know it, it's all and, and then it just kind of escalates to this like ridiculous emotional intensity I guess what wh- what do I like about it well I think that it does kind of I mean that movie really picks at this kind of identification like attraction thing where mm-hmm. I guess Natalie Portman, I mean, she first conceives of Mila Kunis as this as a rival um who's like threat who's like threatening to replace her as the lead ballerina as the Swan Queen. And then there's this like horrifying sex scene <laughs> where she does Molly with Mila Kunis goes back to her apartment her apartment like locks her mom out of the room and then there's this sex scene where she's kind of becoming a swan and <laughs> it's i guess it ends with her like seeing her own face in Mila Kunis mm-hmm. and she realized that like it's not it's not clear exactly what she realizes but like maybe she's been fucking herself like mm-hmm. it, i i mean it's a lot to, to to me this is all extremely entertaining but <laughs> <laughs> But I th- I don't know I feel that also like it's possible like it, it it captures like some of the, some of the like genuine anxiety and I don't know identity confusion of an of a, of a adolescent sexual awakening in a way that appeals to, to my like basis instincts. I love that. I mean, I totally relate. And also, who doesn't like a movie about someone going a bit off the rails and finding power within that? It's like that is the queer narrative, and we've we've latched onto these figures in so many different forms of media for so long because it's it's exciting to watch someone go from meek to strong and to figure out what the costs are of that. And you know, in Natalie Portman's case in this movie, it, the cost is super high, but we're kind of kind of rooting for her to go full black swan like that's what we want I, well i always yeah i think also like as as someone who has like a creative artistic bent like like i also kind of identify with this like pathological obsession with perfection uh-huh where like i mean she eventually like gives her own life to give this perfect performance and i mean it's like deranged but but it's relatable you know mm-hmm. yeah i've seen your videos yeah right it's, <laughs> it's, <laughs> I, I definitely, de- I definitely get very Nina like when I'm when I'm making a, a, a two hour two hour YouTube video that has eight costume changes. Like, I don't know, you don't make that if you're doing completely psychologically well, right? Yeah, I, I remember you posting a photo of your like iMovie timeline or whatever it is that you whatever program you use and the number of clips. Yeah, it's it's. Uh, I mean, I don't know. You just you just can't do something like that without some level of obsession and. Uh, I mean, I don't want to advocate the idea that, like, to be an artist, you have to be mentally ill and you have to be suffering and you have to be an obsessed maniac. Like, but sometimes a little of that helps. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know what to think about this. Yeah. Interesting. Your videos are incredible and they are the product of someone with a meticulous attention to detail. So 
we thank you for that. But also, you know, keep an eye on yourself. Yeah, no, that's, that's probably true. I'll, I, I do think that that it's 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 worth. Oh, keep an eye on it. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, well, I think that moves us on really nicely to your next item again, which is your place. And it's the apartment where you started your YouTube channel. Yes. So I would say that like YouTube was, I mean, I've been kind of making YouTube videos in a s- s- casual way for, for years. Uh, but in 2016, I was, I was what, 26, 27 years old. I had just dropped out of a PhD program I was driving Ubers for a living, teaching piano lessons, and I started this YouTube channel, ContraPoints, which became, you know, the thing that there's a Wikipedia article about me, and the Wikipedia article is called ContraPoints, so, you know, that's, that's uh, that was how important that was, but I, <laughs> I guess to, to me, like, the internet was such a big part of how I sort of, like, came to understand my identity. I don't know. The internet has been a very mixed bag for me, as for all of us. But I think that when it comes to like becoming queer, as the the title of the podcast suggests, I think that the internet kind of enables a certain level of shamelessness that yes. is helpful when it comes to figuring out who you are. And obviously, there that's not completely true. Like you can also be massively shamed on the internet. Uh, that's that's the other side of the coin. But I feel that it's. If I've always found it easier to say certain things about myself to a million strangers online than it is to say it to like my family. Definitely, there's there's something about <laughs> being in a. I mean, first of all, you're not really. It's it's very different being a, being an internet performer than being on a stage. Being on. See, I don't have the the stage that that skill to do shows on stage. Maybe it's a skill I could develop. But I th- I get I get stage fright. Whereas with YouTube, I'm alone. I'm in a room. I'm just talking to a camera. You can say anything to a camera, mm-hmm. like, um, and I did. I said a lot of lot of lot of very, very personal <laughs> things. But I, I don't know. Somehow that just made it sort of e- talking through it to an audience made it easier to kind of say these these things that I felt to be really, uh, I don't know, really difficult, really shameful things. I mean, in, in retrospect, like it was it really wasn't as bad. It didn't need to be like that. It didn't need to be so shameful. But I don't know. That was that was what it took for me. And mm. I don't know the theatrical side of YouTube. There's this kind of I don't know. If you have a queer awakening in your in your twenties or or thirties or, or, or later in life in general, like there is this. There's just no avoiding this kind of cringe second adolescence um, where you just kind of act like you're gonna do a lot of things that teenagers do. Right, because you're figuring yourself out, and that's what it means to be a teenager. But I think that, and of course, to me, this is all like in it, it's all in mortifying detail on the internet. So, oops. But I <laughs> <laughs> could you um, give me an example of mortifying detail, or of yeah, of, 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 of something that you find cringe about your second adolescence as you described it. Um well I think I think one thing that str- that strikes me as cringe is like looking back like just how hard I was trying to I don't know I got so obsessed with with sort of defending my identity that I sort of lost sight of myself in the process. Um mm-hmm. I, I think at times like as I said I almost kind of went back into a second closet like I came out of the gender identity closet only to like immediately lock myself into a sexuality closet, feeling that I kind of needed to be um, 
you know, at least kind of straight adjacent as a woman, if I was going to, uh, if, you know, if I was going to be taken seriously, if I was going to be the right kind of trans person, if I was going to, I don't know, there were all kinds of, of, of feelings of shame that came with it. And I think that looking back on how hard I was trying to be straight is embarrassing. Right. That's fascinating. Well, I wonder if you didn't have that processing tool um, of YouTube and your channel, you know, how much longer it might have taken you to figure that stuff out. Yeah, I do think, I mean, I do think it would have happened eventually. I think that, um, but I think it would have it in a very different way. Um, I, I don't know. It's a mixed bag, like I said, because I think on the one hand, like, the internet became the way that I kind of worked this through, but also the internet is very hostile, you know? So I think that it's, it's not a safe space. Like it's not, it's not like, I don't know. I, I mean, not, not that like having a queer community and offline is always a guaranteed success. Like, no, like there's like toxic people everywhere. And, and especially when people are figuring themselves out there, like it can be difficult to be around each other because you're all sort of, you know, you, you you all have kind of this insecurity about mm -hmm. who you are, where you fit in. Sometimes that comes out as like aggression towards each other. Like, I don't know, queer people can be extremely ag aggressive to each other, cruel. Yeah, jealous. jealous you know, so I, I think that there's no easy solution. Yeah, my experience of like overnight internet fame, it's not really related to that, but basically I think anything you look back at on yourself that you've had the pleasure of immortalizing on the internet is going to be cringe yes. when you get far enough away from That's it. That's so true. Um, so you might as well just be cringe in the moment and not worry too much about it because it's going to be embarrassing at some point regardless. Whatever you do, you will find this embarrassing at some point if you happen to see it. So you might as well just... <laughs> well, you've got a whole video about cringe, don't you? I do, so yeah. You... <laughs> no, that, I mean, that's like cringe. I, I made a whole video about cringe because this is definitely something I've had to come to terms with. Like, mm -hmm. so like I can't stand to, to watch videos of mine that are more than like two years old, maybe. Um, I mean, sometimes even more recent than that. But, you know, I'll watch a video when I'm editing it, obviously. But once it's out in the world, like, I don't want to see it. Like, mm -hmm. I, I don't I don't want to confront that the mortifying ordeal. <laughs> 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 of like having to see myself as I was or how other people see me, uh, it's just awful, um, uh -huh. you know. But I think that I, I also understand, you know, you have that that can be sort that can be sort of paralyzing, you know, worrying, oh, how how is this going to look to me later? Am I in? You're right that you kind of have to kind of get past that inhibition, or you just can't make anything at all. Like, yes, it's yes. going to be cringe later. Just so, just be cringe. Like, yeah. I don't know. Everything worth doing is a little cringe. Yeah. And then, then, you know, there's those people that you follow that seem to have never experienced the idea that cringe could exist as a concept and, and they yes. are living so fully in their cringe, but it's like successful for them because it hasn't occurred to them to be embarrassed of themselves. Well, there's definitely um, a lot of that on YouTube. Like a lot of, I think a lot of people who thrive on YouTube are people who just kind of don't have that sense of shame. Yes. Whereas to me, I have to like, I have to constantly fight through the shame to, to put myself out there. And I think that goes for reality TV and for drag as well. A hundred percent. The key yeah. to success is not taking yourself too seriously slash being a bit of a, a void of shame. Yes, yeah, so um, a certain for level. For better or yeah. for worse. A, a certain level. Well, it's kind of it's compelling entertainment to watch a shameless person, right? Um, yes. 
I think, so either that shamelessness can be natural or you can sort of cultivate it. <laughs> but um, those seem to be what makes good entertainment. I can't imagine also, what, what was it like when you told the world via your channel, like when you came, when you came out? Because you did come out, like, you, you were doing the channel before you came out, correct? Yes, that's right, yeah. Yeah. So, like, I, I mean, I was doing the channel throughout the entire process. Um, so I would say, like, thank God I kind of started transitioning before that many people were watching. Um, I mean, this is back in 2016. So I think that coming out as trans when you already have a million people watching you, that would be, that would be really, I mean, there's people who've done it. Elliot Page, that's mm -hmm. tough. That's really hard, I think. But so, so I at least have the benefit that like m most of the audience I has, has kind of, they've always kind of known me as a trans woman, mm -hmm. but you know, th those first few years of transition are rough and <laughs> It's a rough process. There's there's a lot of, um, you know, you have to try things out. You have to make mistakes. And mistakes were made. I wish I could recant everything that I wore between 2017 and 2018. <laughs> like, but Give us a flavor. Well, there's like a tendency to... The first year of transition, I was always wearing like a ridiculous amount of jewelry. Like, just, I just look back at him, like, do we really, like, his dangling earrings and necklace and the bracelets? Like, can we, like, I hadn't, I certainly never heard of, like, what is it, the Coco Chanel advice that always take yeah. one thing off before you leave the house? <laughs> I, I, this, this was the opposite of my philosophy. I, if anything, I was putting one more thing on before I uh -huh. left the house. Because I'm a woman. Because I'm a woman. And women right. adorn themselves. Right. Isn't that how, isn't that how, <laughs> how to be a woman? Yeah. Cringe. I don't, I don't know what else to say. That's cute, though. <laughs> I think we're going to take a really quick break and then we're going to get back to the last two things that made you queer. Right. Sounds good. Be right back. Hey everybody, I'm Dave Holmes. And I'm Matt McConkie. And we are the hosts of Homophilia, the podcast where we talk to awesome LGBTQ plus people about the pop culture that they are consuming and loving and the love lives that they are leading. The conversations that we wish we had had access to when we were growing up. The, the conversations that we would like to eavesdrop on now. But we have them with the coolest people in the world. Like who, Matt? Sir Andy Cohen himself. What? Michael Patrick King, Tig Notaro, Alan Cumming, Jinx Monsoon, and Vendela Krem. Countless queens from the Drag Race universe. We're asking all of them about the pop culture milestones that shaped them as queer people, and more importantly, who they're having sex with. There you go. It's the queer conversation they don't want you to have. We're having it on Homophilia every week on the World of Wonder Network. Tune in. Listen to Homophilia on the WOW Podcast Network or wherever you listen to podcasts. In a world full of straight people, aren't you glad there's WOW Presents Plus, the number one place in the world to see Drag Race? And so much more. Subscribe to WOW Presents Plus. Still only $4.99. Subscribe today as streamed on TV. Okay, and we are back with the things that made me queer and Natalie Wynn. Natalie, up next, we've got your song or album, and it is the late, great Sophie with Face Shopping. Yes, yeah, so Sophie to me 
Um, her music was so like that was my like transition music. I mean, it's obviously it's, it's great, exciting, exciting music and experimental. And I think that again, like like the Wendy Wendy Carlos was when I was a teenager, having a trans person be so I don't know doing something so artistically interesting it was it was exciting. Um, I also like felt that face chopping that song in particular kind of stands out to me as part of part of my journey because I. Just, I don't know. I decided to get some like facial feminization surgery. It was in 2019, and that song, it kind of ca- captures this this like state of mind I was in, where I'm like, what do I want my face to look like? Um, mm. There's a video that goes along with it where it's it's like it's a sort of computer animation of Sophie's face being sort of twisted and contorted, like and moving around like it's liquid. That to me, like really captures the feeling of like looking in the mirror and being like when, when, once you get the idea in your head that you can surgically change things about <laughs> your, i mean you have you have to watch out for this because like you can you can take this way too far but a little of it i mean i i definitely was there was a stage when i was like oh i, I definitely want to do some and then you so you you start you stare at your face and you start imagining the possibilities that it contains and you're like what gender does my face look like how do other people see me and you start like mm-hmm. analyzing every detail and you're like is my brow ridge too prominent what if my chin was pointier like i feel that song captures that experience and also just like sort of like the violence of it you know i'm not, not i'm not saying that i'm against plastic surgery obviously because i because I, I certainly would be a hypocrite if i were to say that but um and i'm i'm happy with with what i did but i do think that i don't know there's it's reasonable to have anxiety about it <laughs> like yeah because you are kind of doing something really fairly again fairly drastic to yourself in the name of how you know how you want to be seen and yeah. that i mean it's not that's certainly not just a trans experience but it, it for me it definitely was kind of a significant trans experience is, I don't know, this anxiety about what should I, you know, how can I, what can I do to to transition successfully? Or like, how yes. am I going to, you know, do I want to fit in? Do I want to be, or do I want to protect like my individuality? And like, you want both those things. So, you know, I think... I think I said some incredibly generic and medically useless thing to the surgeon. I was just like, I just want like the more feminine version of my face, which I think is what everyone says. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that was, I definitely can remember having this fear going in. I was like, you know, am I still going to recognize myself? Like what if it's, it turned out to be fine. I liked it <laughs> still. I don't know. To me, that me, that, that song really got, really understood me. Yeah. Well, and as you say, the song has such a, a violence to it yeah. as well. It's not euphoric. No, it's not. It's not. It's not a just like just love yourself kind of anthem. I don't know. I feel like the that sort of industrial sound like be, be sort of engages with the, like I don't know the idea of like um, saws and hammers and like cutting into yeah. the, cutting into the skull and the yeah. bone and 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 the kind of more like brutal side of surgery. It must be very confusing to navigate that what you were just saying of you know how much of this is for me and how much of this is for me because of how I want to be perceived and how much of you know not respectability politics but I guess visibility politics um, that must be a real minefield and then thinking about I 
I imagine because you're a very thoughtful person, you know, what structures am I upholding and what am I dismantling and how does that all? Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, well, I went through a stage where, I, I mean, I was thinking about like how I looked and how I presented way too much, like to, to, to an extent that I would consider not healthy. Um, I, I'm really, I really think about it much less now. And I think that's, that's good, but I don't know. I guess I want people to understand, to like try to empathize with this situation of being like, I don't know, in your first couple years of transitioning and like what, you know, how people are perceiving you is often kind of the difference between being treated like a normal person or being just like openly like laughed at. Like I've been like openly like laughed at or like insulted or humiliated or whatever, like in public spaces, like on a regular basis during that time. So it's not just this like narcissism of like, oh, I want to be beautiful. Like there's a little bit of that. Of course there is, <laughs> but but it, there's also, I don't know, you know, wanting to feel safe. Yeah. Wanting to feel safe and accepted and, and like people see you as a, a human being that they can sort of relate to like that's that's a that's a very i think understandable desire and so you know some of some of the drive obviously to surgery does does come from that and i think that's legitimate i also think it's legitimate to, even if you do want to have surgery because of a kind of like i don't know aesthetic like self-perfecting project there's some people who definitely you know it's it's that's that's more what plastic surgery is for them for me, it was, it was a mix of the two. Hmm. It's also incredibly powerful to like self-actualize. Yeah. It, it's like mm. so direct. I think there is, yeah, there is something to be said for like the, the fact that you sort of can be, you, that you were your own creation in a sense. Like, yeah, that, that is powerful. And I think that's a very, I think that's a very stylish and um, aesthetic way to, to live. Absolutely. And it's why we love Natalie Portman turning into the Black Swan. Yeah, yes, yeah, she's like this. Like, <laughs> she's she's in the in this quest of self perfection. Yeah, and it's really, yeah. it's exciting. Yeah, it's powerful. It's cool. How do you feel? You know, a couple of years on from that. Well, I think in some ways the fact that I I did a good amount and then knew when to stop, I think that's shown in the fact that now I kind of just don't think about this very much. I would say that I did kind of reach a point where I realized like my, this, the certain kind of self-perfecting obsession can in fact make you miserable um, mm -hmm. or can become dangerous. Like in, in, in the case of, of anorexia, where I think a lot of times anorexia is a, a, a kind of self-perfecting aesthetic obsession that becomes sort of, I don't want to say masochistic because I think it's more like being cruel to yourself right? It's like you sort of internalize this voice saying like, oh, you know, you know, you know t telling you how your body should be and telling you what to eat. But I think that, so sometimes people compare like gender dysphoria to eating disorders. I don't think that's fair because I think that it's possible. It, I think there's ways of tra transitioning where the, out the outcome is basically that the person is much happier and healthier, um, which I don't think is the case with eating disorders. Um, but I, I, I agree that there is like some superficial similarities, right? Like, like both of them do involve this kind of like dysphoria about, you know, how you look and, and having a, wanting to pursue a different ideal and the way that there's a difference between an eating disorder and like reasonable dieting. I think this, the same kind of distinction can happen with trans people where there's, okay, there's doing things to alleviate gender dysphoria that will actually help you. And then there's, getting obsessed to the point that it's 
it's it's hurting you. So I feel that for for me for a while, I don't know, I was so obsessed with how I was presenting that it was taking up too much mental life. It's kind of, mm. and it's kind of, you know, at the end of the day, like it's not the most interesting thing about a person. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and you know, we all age, like no one, no, like you, you, you kind of have to, at some point, adopt realism about speak for yourself. Yeah. <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm sorry if I, I'm sorry if I'm uh, ruining anyone's aspirations of <laughs> immortal youth. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I certainly do my best to, to fight it too, but I feel like, I don't know, you have, you have to like set rules for yourself. How, how many hours in the day am I allowed to spend on, a, on not having wrinkles? <laughs> yeah, seriously. It's true. It's, I, I, as you say, eventually it just becomes not that interesting. Yeah. I think, I think I'm allowed, I think I'm allowed 15 to 15 to 20 minutes a day on, on, on not having wrinkles <laughs> on skincare on skincare yeah Fair enough. yeah i think i yeah. think that's a reasonable amount and after that a kind of buddhist attitude has to be adopted that you know like <laughs> like what is not in your control like that you must not have a, a feeling about it's an interesting thing with me and drag because obviously there's so much conscious creation uh-huh. of of a look whenever i do drag and it's ours and it is so so boring but also you know just part of of my job and i think it in some ways it has made me more obsessed with my appearance but in other ways i think it's like it's kind of siloed it off so i'm like this is the this is the part in my life where i get to be incredibly shallow and yeah, i can try yeah. and be less of that i can have try and have less of that in the rest of my life and you know maybe that's like having a split personality. But. No, I love that. Like I think I think I think that's why a lot of people like doing drag. Like you kind of can sort of compartmentalize these particular personality traits into the into this performance that you do. And that way you can you can sort of, you know, you, they, they they don't have to infect your the rest of your life so much. Um <laughs> I don't know. I I've always I've I'm like a drag curious person. Like I, I feel like I, I've, I've, especially for, for doing videos, I've done very co- elaborate like wigs and makeup and things. Mm. And there is a kind of, um, I don't know, there, there, there is, it is a ton of work. There's also that, do, do you ever have those moments like where you were like, I don't know, you just love the way that you did the makeup and the, and the wig looks good. And, and like, you just like, you just feel like a beautiful, magical creature. And it's like, <laughs> Every time, yeah. That see, that's <laughs> that's such a, it's like such a wonderful feeling, and it's like because it's not just like I, I feel beautiful, but it's it's like I feel beautiful, and I made this. Like I made this, yes. this beautiful. I made myself beautiful, and like I don't know, that will always be satisfying. <laughs> it's um the reason I think I I kept going back to drag is because I feel like as as a boy, I'm not allowed to celebrate necessarily myself, yeah. or it's vain to celebrate myself. Um, whereas if I have really gone above and beyond in a creative process to create something new, it's absolutely fine for me to give myself a pat on the back and to tell the world how great I think I look. I mean, I definitely think so. It's, it's interesting because I think I, I agree with you. Like, and I definitely felt that growing up that like as a person who was supposed to be a boy anyway, like <laughs> I, I was like a lot of my like early kind of gender dysphoria came from this feeling of I'm not supposed to, like I was actually treated like psychiatrically in high school for, for OCD 
because they thought I was spending too much time on 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 my hair and spending too much mm-hmm. time like fussing with like you know grooming and stuff. It's like I don't know if I had been a girl, I feel like this would have been like a normal amount of wow. of hair care because we're not talking about seven hours. We're talking about an hour. And like I don't uh-huh. think I don't think I don't know if a teenage girl spends an hour on her appearance a day is that considered pathological? I don't think it is. On the other hand, I do also think that like I also think it's true that women are extremely policed for being vain, for being. Um, I mean, I think that that I, I I still kind of feel that on some level. I don't know being a drag being a drag in a drag persona is 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 still very different. It's a very different set of expectations than being a woman because women are supposed to be yes. humble and not supposed to to be self. Um, you know. Definitely. I when I do drag, I very rarely refer to myself as a drag queen. I yeah. call myself a drag artist. I'm not mm-hmm. particularly interested in pretending to be a woman. That's not what yeah, I get it's, into. It's it I'm about, interested yeah. in creating a a big, gorgeous creature, and that's why you know the the beauty of drag being for everyone is that everyone should get an opportunity in their life to experience what it's like to be incredibly obsessed with how gorgeous you look <laughs> right it's, it's, it's not female impersonation at all that's the completely wrong yeah. conceptual framework for it it's, yeah. it's like gaping gender in a way but by uh-huh. being hyper gendered like uh-huh. yeah i loved yeah i loved your blue wig in your last video it was <laughs> really gorgeous thank you thank you yeah i was pretty amateur when it comes to, to doing wigs but i did get a lesson once from james mansfield and uh stunning did you do that yourself i did it yeah yeah Better. i did that one my, my, myself Using the using the steamer and the trash bag method. Beautiful. It's much better than anything I could do. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I'm sure that's not true. <laughs> no, it definitely is. I really can't. I, like, I look at hair and it knots. I, it's, I outsource yeah, that. It's, it's tough. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I, I've outsourced some of the things I do, but I did do that one. So I'll, yeah. thank you. I'll take the compliment. Well, yeah. Yeah. Own the gorgeousness. <laughs> Okay, let's move on to your last item, which is your wild card. And you've just said villainy. Villainy. Absolutely. <laughs> I feel like at every stage of my life, like th- whatever about me is queer is kind of recognized in in v- v- villainy, whether it's Disney villains, whether it's vampires, whether it's uh, transgender serial killers, whether it's whatever it is, like, I don't know, lesbian predators, like uh, there, there's this kind of recognition in the horrible ways that straight people show us that sort of nonetheless is exciting. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, and I realized like, this is like hardly an original point that I'm making here because I think m- most of us feel, feel this on some level. Uh, I don't know, a lot goes into it. It's, it's, it's often like the one time you get to see queer people being powerful is when they're being villainous. I think that I can, I don't know, I can remember being a kid and just kind of loving the queen from Snow White this mm. again, kind of kind of a, a little bit of like a drag persona. This this vain, mm-hmm. beautiful person on some kind of homicidal mission. But yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that that literally describes my drag persona. Well, it's it's, it's a very appealing persona. Uh, you know, yeah. or like death becomes her kind of uh-huh. persona. I, th- I feel like in real life, this is this is not tolerated by society. This kind of behavior, but like in fantasy, we love it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's revenge fantasy also because mm. uh, we spend our life being othered or um, bullied or cast aside or ostracized or whatever, you know, your version of that beautiful queer cocktail is. Um, and so seeing camp arch figures 
getting revenge, getting even, getting powerful, you know, taking control. It's just so exciting. It is. Yeah. I think that makes me, that makes me think of like, like Maleficent, like, <laughs> yes, I don't know. Um, or I, so, so that's definitely one dimension. I also feel like there's this, uh, there's this other part where even representative, even in representations that I don't find empowering at all, like I, f- well, I don't know. You can still find something to, to like, I feel that. So it's like silence of the lambs Th- that movie. Mm. I saw that movie when I was in my early twenties. And like, I think at first I was kind of like horrified by it. Like I felt like I was being attacked. This character, Buffalo Bill, who's like a transsexual serial killer. Um, but I feel like over time I've kind of come to, st- <laughs> I've, I've like developed this like ironic appreciation of this character. Oh my God. <laughs> like, like, well, cause I don't know. Cause like, cause like people always, I don't know if you're, if you're trans online, like people will like bully you by sending you like the gif of Buffalo Bill, like saying like, would you fuck me? Like I'd fuck me, but I don't know. Like, is this like, I, I agree that this like serial killing is too far, but what's so wrong with, with, with like, with, with saying you want to fuck yourself? Like, uh-huh. I don't know if you can't fuck yourself, how in the hell are you going <laughs> to fuck anyone else? Like, <laughs> I don't know. I just, I just, find, I just find it entertaining that this is what's threatening to people. <laughs> right, right. I didn't realize that that was a common um, trolling trope. I, I've heard, I've heard a lot. Also, you know, there's something to be said for reclaiming a villain who was based on terrible tropes of queer people, and and saying, you know what, it's actually kind of camp, and like, I'll be your villain. Finding the sort of relatable or likable, like grain in in this like monstrous representation it it is like a way of like you know you make it sort of non-threatening by like bringing it into yourself yeah 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 and diffusing the power as well of like not letting that hurt you right not not feeling refusing to be humiliated yeah yeah you can only be shamed if the shame is already within you yeah absolutely you know, someone tries to shame you and you don't feel any shame then it's nothing. Exactly. It's absolutely powerless. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, I love I love all of those stories and those insights. And thank you so much for being so vulnerable with all of your items and talking about all of your experiences. It's really, I, I love talking to you. And if you feel like you ever want to have um, another queer renaissance and you need a whole new list of items <laughs> to discuss it, you're welcome back on the podcast I mean, anytime. Considering my track record, record uh, it, we can probably count on it. <laughs> Before uh, I let you go, do you want to play a quick game of But Is It Queer? I would love to. Okay, gorgeous. So we're just going to um, spitball some some ideas and um, decide if they're queer or not. I'm going to start with an easy one. Okay. The City of Berlin. I, I think it's easy. Uh, super queer, super gay, yeah. super lesbian very strong bisexual yeah. vibes very transgender um yeah i mean berlin i mean obviously I, i've never been actually but it's i'm told a very gay city but it's also where um i, I, th- I think the original like trans medicine was invented basically um the sexual mm-hmm. institute institute for sexual sciences magnus hirschfeld was the first to do um tr- trans hrt in in the 30s uh, is this the the place that was destroyed by the Nazis yes, and, yes. and and becomes used as a was, a bit of a culture war talking point? Yeah, their, their books their nowadays, books were burned. Yeah, and, uh, the book burning. Yeah. yeah, but um, in the Weimar years, it was yeah that's that's where like Lily Elba 
the the Danish girl went to to transition, and they they had they oh. they knew about testosterone. They uh, had even sort of experimented with some, some primitive surgeries, but you got to start somewhere. Hmm. Oh, great! I love that. It's uh, got a whole other dimension of queerness than I even had considered. That's just what I thought of. <laughs> Yeah, well, that plus fisting, definitely super queer. Yeah, queer as hell. <laughs> well, uh, you go, what have you got? Uh, champagne. Is champagne queer? Champagne. Mm. I think so, because it's decadent, and it's a treat, and uh, it's rarefied. Yeah, I agree. And then It's, it's extant. Yeah, but Prosecco, no. Yeah, completely. <laughs> <laughs> the, 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 the inherent heterosexuality of Prosecco. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Prosecco can be like a bit gay sometimes, but... As a treat. Yeah, yeah. but champagne is going to be queer. Full, full time. 100%. Mm-hmm. I'm glad we agree. <laughs> okay, what about pearls? Pearls, extreme, extremely extremely queer. That's the same reasons as champagne. <laughs> Decadent, opulent. And a synonym for... You know, a, a pearl necklace. Yeah, there's well, there's all kinds of implications. Drought of pearls, a pearl necklace that comes from an oyster. Oh. Uh, I don't know. Oysters are queer. Yeah, oysters are well, o- oyster, oysters are are lesbian specifically. Yeah. So I don't know. You can you can transform this like oysters the pearl symbolism in any kind of dire- in all, all kinds of directions. Yeah. <laughs> uh, have you got one more for me? Well, see, I'm just thinking of things that I think are queer. I want to think of ones that, that that's like truly ambiguous. Is everything queer? Uh, the, the, <laughs> the, the the universe. How about, okay, how about this? How about how about the ocean? The ocean. The ocean. Ooh. Okay. So, the original mother. Yes. Giver of life. Completely. Currently, you know, polluted. That's pretty queer. <laughs> <laughs> what toxic? Toxic. <laughs> Oh, I, I like this one. That's a tough one. I don't know. What do you think? Um, I definitely think that the ocean is queer. It's fluid, first of all. So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's probably got, like, the most number of species that, like, don't give a fuck about gender. Yeah, that's true. It is, It is like, so the ocean is, like, fundamentally non-binary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and just, like, full of things that, like, are going to have sex with themselves or yes, flip-flop. self-creating, or... generating, ambiguous. Yeah. Mm. Beautiful. I love that. The ocean. Queer. We really got to the bottom of this. <laughs> <laughs> the marina trench of yeah. queerness. <laughs> Natalie, thank you so much for making the time to talk to me. I loved this. I love talking to you and oh, love this episode. Thank you so much for having me on. This was a lot of fun. I can't wait to watch your next video. And where can people listening support and follow you? And what should they do? I am ContraPoints on YouTube and on Twitter and on Instagram. Um, so that's where you can find me. I I tweet a lot and I post a video once every several months because it takes a long time. <laughs> <laughs> and they're worth it. Thank you. Thank you so much. Enjoy your day in Baltimore and um, I hope to talk to you soon. Thank you. You too. Okay. Bye. Thank you so much to Natalie Wynn and thank you for listening. Sorry again, it's taken so long to get you these new episodes, but I am so glad that you're here with me for the new season. As always, please, 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 please go subscribe, share, comment, post, like, tweet, mail, whatever. 
uh, it is super helpful. So if you're doing it already, thank you so much. And if you haven't, now is the time. Um, right, I will be back with you next week with more of the things that made us queer. Until then, bye. The Things That Made Me Queer is a World of Wonder production. Our theme song is Something Like Summer, provided graciously by Caveboy. <laughs>